It is Tuesday, February 27th, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, providing the community with addiction support. So I always say that we serve individuals from womb to tomb, and we do everything from education and prevention all the way up to crisis intervention. Plus, Alice Gachuzo Colleen has passion for democracy. I want all the access that I would get for a normal authorized biography, but I don't want to give up any editorial control. In other words, I want you to tell me all your secrets, but you don't get to decide what goes in the book and what goes out. I get to decide, right? (laughs) And a big ask leads to a biography of a sitting U.S. senator. I want all the access that I would get for a normal authorized biography, but I don't want to give up any editorial control. All of that coming up after the news from NPR. Walmart Amp presents Maggie Rogers on the Don't Forget Me Tour, Monday, June 3rd at the Walmart Amp and Rogers with special guest, The Japanese House. Tickets on sale this Friday at 10 a.m. at amptickets.com. This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, February 27th, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF Public Radio, a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. Later today, we welcome back our militant grammarian to discuss the importance of saying what you mean. That's in our second half hour. First today, Washington and Benton County each reported between four and six drug overdose deaths per 100,000 people in 2023. That's according to the Arkansas State Department of Health. This is a significant decrease in the overdose rates from 2022, which averaged closer to 9 to 16 people per 100,000. But what resources are available to members of our community who continue to struggle with addiction? And what might be the reason behind the decrease in overdose deaths? Ozarks at Largest Savina Rani reports. Drug addiction is a complex, often polarizing issue influenced by various factors. One of those factors, which may not be the first that comes to mind, is community support. ARISA Health is a private nonprofit organization and combination of four major mental health centers in Arkansas, created in February of 2020. Dr. Laura H. Taylor is the CEO of ARISA Health. And she says ERISA acts to provide a wide variety of services to a vast amount of individuals in our region who struggle with addiction. So I always say that we serve individuals from womb to tomb, and we do everything from education and prevention all the way up to crisis intervention and plugging people into um, inpatient care if that's needed. And so we have residential programs, we have outpatient programs. We are very active in the schools. Universal of Health is in 450 schools across the 41 counties that we serve. Universal of Health is a private nonprofit organization governed by a volunteer board of directors. And we have individuals that represent the board from across the 41 counties that we serve. We actually wanted to come together under a new name, and ERISA has some roots, the root word for uh, RISE, and that is really what we try to do is walk alongside individuals as they're rising out of whatever situation they find themselves in. Predominantly, we're treating individuals who have a mental health issue or substance use issue, and 
oftentimes those come together. We lead with exceptional care that nurtures health and well-being for all. And our vision is to transform communities one life at a time. And so we really want to recognize the individual and um, come alongside them. And so that name really fit us from that perspective. Dr. Taylor says there is a large number of individuals who struggle with drug addiction in the state of Arkansas. She says a major cause of this is opioid prescriptions, which Arkansas has a surplus of, compared to other states. There are more prescriptions out there than there are people for opioids, and prescription medications are very problematic. They're often abused. Now, don't get me wrong, fentanyl and uh, Synthetic drugs that are, you know, produced on the, not through pharmaceutical companies are very, very dangerous because they're not regulated, of Mm -hmm. course, and they're often much stronger than, um, than what people are thinking they're going to get. And so they're very, they, they are very dangerous and deadly. Dr. Taylor says Arissa Health has been lucky to receive the amount of philanthropic support it has from the Arkansas community. Arissa has expanded its services and physical footprint around northwest Arkansas since its creation four years ago. Most recently, the organization received a $4 million grant from Jane Hunt to construct a new facility in Benton County. That, that is the largest gift that uh, any of the legacy organizations have ever received. And then right on the heels of that, we were so very fortunate to receive a $1.25 million gift from the Walker Foundation. Now, historically, the Walker Foundation has been a very loyal and supportive friend to Ozark Guidance Center. And um, so those, those gifts have come in the past year, and they have just really been helpful to us. The Hunt gift is going to help us expand uh, services and bring a new uh, building to our population that is growing exponentially in Benton County. And the Walker gift is going to help us uh, refurbish uh, facilities on our uh, Springdale campus where our home office is. I love the heart of both uh, Jane Hunt and uh, Mandy Mackey, who have had such a desire to see people that we serve, kind of the people that don't always have the same ability to advocate for themselves. They're often underinsured or insured uh, by governmental payers. And so they just have a lot of struggle in the community. And, and the fact that both of these foundations have the ability to see the need and the desire and heart to help has been fabulous for us. We will be looking for additional philanthropic support to complete the building in uh, Benton County, but we are, that that uh, gift has been huge from um, Jane Hunt. Part of Jane Hunt's gift was designated towards providing scholarships to people in the state pursuing a master's degree to become a mental health professional. Dr. Taylor says this aid is vital. There is a tremendous work shortage in Arkansas. There are only a handful of counties in Arkansas that are not considered um, shortage areas, designated shortage areas for mental health professionals. And so we really need uh, more providers to, 
to provide better access and make sure there are services for um, individuals who seek care. Dr. Taylor says part of the struggle to get clean lies with the stigma behind drug addiction and recovery, in addition to shortages of mental health professionals in the state. Every person knows someone who struggles with an addiction, whether that's in their family or whether that's a relative. Uh, we have kind of the misperception that individuals who have addictions are, you know, not functioning, working contributing members of our community, but oftentimes they are until their addiction gets so serious that they lose family or they lose uh, employment. The other thing we need to understand is that the there is stigma, but it, it's simply because um, I think we do not understand and accept that addiction is another type of disorder. Not not all of us are prone to an addiction, just like not all of us are prone to having diabetes. But if you have it, it is an illness that you have to learn to manage and control, or it will take control of you. So treatment works. There are new treatments, and there is medication-assisted treatment that is particularly um, promising and helpful. And so I think we just have to come alongside people who have addiction and help them as they journey toward recovery. And I will tell you, oftentimes, that journey toward recovery is not linear. It's just a hard thing. I don't know what you love to, to uh, do. If there's a, I, me, I love chocolate. And to never again have chocolate would be a real challenge. We all have things that to think about, like, Totally giving those up would be very difficult. Dr. Taylor says treatment looks different for everyone. For some, abstinence is necessary. For others, she says starting with different forms of harm reduction might be better. Because that's the first step, making sure that people don't have behaviors that are so dangerous that they put themselves or other people at risk. And we've made you know great headway with knowing not to drink when we're, you know, not to drink and drive or, you know, buzz drinking is, is driving under the influence. We've got a lot more work to do. And since the pandemic, we've seen a huge increase in the use of substance abuse. Over the course of time, we also see experimentation at younger and younger ages. We have way too many individuals who are not receiving care in the de facto treatment has become the jail I really think as a community, we have to work on changing that equation. Uh, and I'm not being critical in any way of our jails. They they really lean in and try to do the best job they can, but they are not mental health providers. So to the extent that we can, you know, I'm very encouraged by what we see with co-responding that's really growing in our community in with law enforcement and mental health professionals responding together. I think that's a wonderful thing, and we want to see more of that. So the other thing is that I said it earlier, but treatment works. One in five adults experience mental illness. One in six youth experience a mental health disorder. This is something that we really all want to learn more about, and treatment works. We should encourage people to get treatment, and we want to prevent suicide. And suicide is the 12th leading cause of death overall, but for individuals who are 10 to 14, it's the second leading cause of death. So this is serious business that we're in. For more information on Arissa Health, 
the services it provides, and how you might contribute to their cause, you can visit arisahealth.org. That's A-R-I-S-A health.org. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Sophia Narani. Sophia Narani produced her story inside the Herald and Blanche Cock News Studio. Later this hour, a bold proposition by a journalist looking to write a biography of a sitting senator. I want all the access that I would get for a normal authorized biography, but I don't want to give up any editorial control. In other words, I want you to tell me all your secrets, but you don't get to decide what goes in the book and what goes out. I get to decide, right? (laughs) My conversation with McKay Coppins about his new book, Romney, A Reckoning. That's in about 15 minutes on Ozarks at Large. We're one week into early voting in the March primary, which also includes the election for judicial elections, such as the Supreme Court Chief Justice, as well as district judges in some areas. Reporting shows that early voting turnout has been low so far, which is not surprising for a state that ranks dead last in voter turnout. Grant Tenniel is the chair of the Democratic Party of Arkansas, and when we spoke in January about the primary, one of the questions was around low voter turnout statewide. Tenniel says registering voters and turning those registered voters out to vote is something he talks about all the time. We are incredibly fortunate, though, that one of my mentors and and one of the greatest public servants in the history of Arkansas, uh, Senator Joyce Elliott, um, when she retired, jumped out and started an organization that's dedicated to nothing but registering people to vote. And she doesn't even care if you're a Democrat or a Republican. Now, she'd love it if you're a Democrat, but she'll register you if you're a Republican. But the thing that she and I have talked about in the last year since the last cycle, and they've been at this now for a couple of years, and the the numbers are growing. It takes time. But the one thing that we've really got to focus on as well is it's not just registering. You got to come back and turn them out because they won't go by themselves. <laughs> a lot of folks won't. They need that encouragement, especially if they hadn't voted in a while or if they never voted before. It can be intimidating. And so really starting to work on the, the turnout and those turnout models and how we drive that stuff. And there used to be you know, a real tradition of you know, turnout and transportation and all kinds of things that that went into moving people to the polls. I think that there were times in our past, not just in Arkansas, but all over the country, where some of that stuff got a little loosey-goosey and people stopped doing it because they started getting in trouble because they were spending money and not reporting it and doing all those kinds of things. Um, but there are, there are obviously many, 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 many good legal ways and great partners that, that we can reach out to and say, you know, we need to help, you know, particularly seniors, you know, and, and the flip side, seniors and, you know, the very young who 99 times out of 100, they want to go. They just need somebody to grab them by the hand and say, come on, let's go. Let's go vote. And that's, it's got, it's a focus and it's got to remain a focus. And, you know, it's, it's tied to a lot of the, the same issues that plague Arkansas all the way around. I mean, our lack of voter participation is tied to our literacy rate and it's tied to, you know, a, a number of other things that we've got to get focused on, particularly in rural Arkansas. And, and the other thing that we can't deny, or at least I'm not going to I'm going to let you deny. We've been fairly thoroughly gerrymandered. You know, we've got legislators who live in central Arkansas and now represent people in Jonesboro. Do you see a correlation from your vantage point of the 
the low voter turnout and the people who were being elected to office, the way that those elections are turning out? Yeah, I, I think so. And, and and I think that give you one example that I, I've had to look at a couple of times in the last few months. Some of the redistricting that they did, for instance, in Crittenden County, Arkansas, where West Memphis is, there was a polling place that had been a polling place for close to 50 years. They closed it. They moved those people 40 miles to go vote. That's a couple of hours for a working person on a Tuesday. You really, really, really got to want to vote. And unfortunately, you know, I don't think my generation even, you know, the Xers are, are as dedicated as, as the, the older boomers are. You know, especially among the black community here in Arkansas, where, you know, the, the vote was the route to, to civil rights. And, you know, we've still got, you know, leaders in this party. Janie Cotton, my vice chair, who lived it. And she'll go vote on the moon if that's what it takes. But we don't have enough that are like that anymore. And we've really got to get that built back up because I think that what we're seeing in this country right now, not just in Arkansas, but all over everywhere is the the fallout from losing that sort of patriotic feeling of we, we got to work together to do good, to take care of everybody. Grant Tenille is the chair of the Democratic Party of Arkansas. It is too late to register to vote in the March primary, but if you are already registered, you can early vote now. Election day is March 5th. This is Ozarks at Large. Alice Cachuzo Colleen arrived in Springdale in 1993 when she was 14, and she's well invested in her city. She's a driving force behind the now seven-year-old Springdale Martin Luther King Jr. observation, works with the voter registration organization Get Loud Arkansas, and she went headlong into politics when she ran for Springdale City Council, advancing to a runoff election. Recently, she talked with Randy Wilburn for his I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast, and told him she gets involved in what she thinks is right. I was sitting on my couch, me and my daughter and my son. Seven years ago, we were sitting in the house, literally, and we were like, yo, y'all want to have an MLK celebration? <laughs> Seriously, we were just sitting there. And um, they were like, yeah. And the very next day, we went to the city council meeting, and we were like, I was actually sitting there and I was shaking, visibly shaking. And my daughter pushed me and I went to the podium and I told them in January, and this was in December, <laughs> I told them in January, me and my daughter and my son, we're going to have an MLK celebration. And that was seven years ago. And I did it just because I felt like it was something that needed to be done. Not because I didn't recognize what was happening in Fayetteville. But because I knew that it was also a need for it to happen in Springdale. When I think about the vision of Dr. King and when I think about the community of Springdale, I think about the ability that the people in Springdale have had to come to Springdale with no job, no front. A lot of our residents in Springdale have come to Springdale with no formal education. A lot of them have not had the ability to speak the language. 
of English. A lot of them don't have, you know, a traditional background, you know, like an American background per se. Yeah. But they have been able to survive and thrive and have a great job and income and just tap into their potential and be judged and seen based on who they were. And I could not think of a better reason to celebrate the legacy of Dr. King when I looked around and saw all of the beautiful people and all of the beautiful colors and all of the beautiful races and religions coming together in Springdale. In the history of Springdale, being a sundown town and looking at all the people that were being able to achieve his ultimate dream. Yeah. And so that's why I felt like that was so necessary. And then to see that seven years later, it's actually still happening. Yeah. What you're doing with Get Loud Arkansas in terms of just getting people out to vote. And I mean, you're not. Obviously, your goal is we need to get everybody out to vote. I think people just. It's not a black or white thing. It it's is really it is not. it's, it's not like a, everybody it's needs to do their civic thing. duty. It is and that's the thing. Like get loud Arkansas. It's not a, you know, Republican, Democrat, black, white. It is very nonpartisan. My job is not to say, "Hey, I need you to register only if you're a Republican. I need you to register only if you're a Democrat." And that is not my job. My job is to register you because at the end of the day, if you do not register, you have genuinely wasted the opportunity to use your vote. You have wasted the opportunity to use your gift. So many people have actually given their life so that you have the opportunity to use your voice, your vote. They have like just actually died. Yeah. I tell folks all the time, I don't care what color your tie is. (laughs) Like I genuinely don't care. Put it on. Yeah. I don't care what it is. Put it on. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, when you don't put it on, someone's counting on you to not put it on. Whether it's a blue tie or a red tie, someone's counting on you not to put that tie on. Yeah. Um, and, and and I think it's part of some of the disenfranchisement that we see mm-hmm. in this country as a whole. Right. And, and again, I don't really get into whole like there's two areas I don't really touch upon. I'm very religious, but I don't talk about religion. I just part. I just live it. And. I'm very political, but I don't talk about politics because there's plenty of podcasts out there that get on that. Mm-hmm. But there are concepts and ideas that I think we can all embrace. And mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't know a person out there that wants to be disenfranchised. But there's so many of us that are because yeah. of our inability to either trust the system or to want to be a part of it because you feel like it's so broken. It's unfixable. Well, if it's not fixable. Somebody has to go in and fix it, right? I mean, that you can't. Part. Yeah, you can't just sit it by. Can't, you can't like you it can't, can't be a spectator. If right. it's not, if you're like literally, come no, on now. you can't be a spectator. <laughs> you got to say, you know what? This is broke. We got to do something about it. And I kind of see that as you know, when you decided to dip your toe into the water and run for city council, not that you felt like, oh, well, Springdale's broken, but you were like, hey, I've got a voice. I want my voice to be heard. In a different way, right? Yeah. Because once you become a city councilor in any city that you live in, your voice is heard in a different way. And you get to take in things and learn things about your city that you didn't know before. And you get to be part of the process, really part of the process. And I can say that that was that was scary. I want to be honest. You yeah. know, that was a scary process. Why? I mean, it was scary, not just for me. It was scary for my children. Yeah. Because when you take a step like that, you're not taking that step just for you. 
because you're not putting just yourself on a spotlight. Yeah. You're putting your whole family in a spotlight. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And if anyone knows anything about Alice, they know that everything that Alice does, Alice and those three little people, <laughs> you know, they are literally my little shadows. They are everything. It's always us three. Sure. Or us four. It's us four against the world. And so um, every decision that I make, it's usually us four. We make that decision together. And so it was scary to make that decision and know that it was not just going to be me. And it was going to be me and three other people. Yeah. Um, but once the decision was made, it was us four together and it was okay. And they knocked with me and they walked with me and they stood with me and they canvassed with me. And the night of the first, you know, the first, the first election night. And so <laughs> I remember like it was yesterday. I sat in there and the, the first, um, you know, the results came and I was like, oh, man, I didn't make it. And I sat down in my chair and I started crying. Like, I just started <laughs> crying. Right. And my daughter was like, Mom, what are you doing? Like, why are you crying? You didn't read it right. <laughs> and so, like, my dog is crazy. Mm -hmm. So anytime any like, naturally, you know, anytime anyone starts, like, ah, screaming, and, like, she goes crazy, you know. And so they're like, oh, my God, you made it to a runoff. And so, like. I'm still crying because I don't know what's going on. Right. And they're like, Ma, you made it. You made it. You made it. And so then, like, I freak out because now I realize that I didn't lose and I made it to a runoff. And they were like, Mom, we're so proud of you. Yeah. So then I realized that everything that my children has seen in me for all of these years, all of these people in Springdale have seen in me. Not have they just now, you know, like people have been saying this for years. They've been telling this, Alice, we see this in you. We believe in you. We we know you can do this. I've been hearing people tell me this for years. You know, you can hear people say things. Sure. But until that moment, I had just heard it. But once it came across that screen, I actually saw that that's what they really meant. And then the tears came for a different reason. <laughs> I was so proud. I was proud of myself. I was proud of my grandma. So my grandma, Alibi, that's who I'm named after. Her mm -hmm. name is Alice B. My name is Alice B. Grandma Alibi passed away when I was 20 years old. And I always felt like I, this is where the real Alice is coming. That's fine. I always felt like I would never made her proud. <laughs> so at that moment, I felt like I had proud. Even though, you know, she had been gone for 20-something years. At that one moment, I felt like I had finally made my grandma proud. You felt like you stood on her shoulders? I really did. Yeah. Little old Alice, with a high school diploma, no college degree, no husband, yeah. no 401k, no none of that, had did the impossible in Springdale Arkansas. You can hear the full conversation between Alice Gachuzo Colleen and Randy Wilburn on the latest episode of the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast, found at all podcast platforms and at KUAF.com.
This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Senator Mitt Romney sees himself as a man who solves crises. As a businessman, he helped write the ships of many companies through his work at Bain Capital. As governor of Massachusetts, he pulled the state out of a major budget deficit. In 2002, he essentially saved the Salt Lake City Winter Olympics. In the book Romney, A Reckoning, we learned that perhaps there is just one crisis that might be unsolvable for the retiring Utah senator. Author McKay Coppins has been reporting on Romney for quite some time, and he says while he remembers the first time he officially met Romney, there's a good chance a less intentional meeting happened much earlier. I think I may have met him when I was actually a pretty young child, but I have no memory of it. I grew up in Massachusetts, uh, actually lived in uh, Belmont, the same town that he was in. And as a part of the relatively small Mormon community in the Boston suburbs, my parents tell me that there's a good chance that I, I met him just, you know, at some kind of church event or something, but I have no memory of it. The first time I remember meeting him, he was actually uh, a senator. He had just been sworn in. And so I had by that point been covering him for many years. I had covered his presidential campaign. I had gone to probably hundreds of his rallies, uh, but I had never actually interviewed him. I didn't sit down and start talking to him until he got to Washington. Was there a certain appeal to to him as a as a fellow member of the Mormon church that you know you felt this this sort of kinship perhaps I think it's fair to say that I had a higher degree of interest in him than maybe the average reporter um I don't know if it was necessarily you know a, a kinship it certainly wasn't like a rooting interest but I, I was fascinated by him and um I remember covering his 2012 campaign and talking to reporters once, because you remember when he was running for president, he was kind of very, the the rap on him was that he was very kind of plastic, right? A lot of people felt like they couldn't get an authentic sense of who he was. And I remember talking to a reporter once uh, who said, you know, maybe he's just one of those guys who doesn't have much of an interior life. There's not really anything going on beneath the surface, right? And I, in, I had an intuition that that wasn't true. I, I always had this sense that there was a lot more going on than he, he was letting on as a political candidate. And part of that was probably our shared faith. I had this idea that, you know, like we had grown up going to the same church. He's obviously much older than me. But like I, I had a sense of his theological worldview about his values, but I, I just couldn't get at it. I, I felt like as a presidential candidate, he was so aloof. So part of what made doing this book so compelling to me was that I finally got a chance to kind of sit down with him and ask him all the questions I had always had. And not just that, he also gave me his journals and his email correspondence. And I was able to see what was going on in his mind and kind of the calculations he was making, the the decisions he regretted, the things that gave him regret or guilt. I mean, it was a, it was kind of a fascinating look into the head of a person I had spent a lot of time thinking about. You know, as you mentioned, he gave you a lot of access. Were you surprised (laughs) by how much access he gave you? I was. I mean, I remember when I I pitched him on the idea for this book, I I kind of thought he would balk at my proposal because what I, I said was, I want all the access that I would get for a normal authorized biography but I don't want to give up any editorial control. In other words, I want you to tell me all your secrets, but 
you don't get to decide what goes in the book and what goes out. I get to decide, right? <laughs> but to my surprise, and, and you know, I actually said to him, look, if you don't think you can be fully candid right now, you're still a sitting senator. I get it. If you don't think you can be fully candid, let's not do this book now. Maybe we revisit it down the road. But, you know, I don't think it makes sense unless you're willing to be forthcoming. And he almost took that as a dare. I mean, like I said, he started just giving me his journals and his papers and his email correspondence. He blocked off weekly meetings every time he was in Washington. Uh, I would go to his home at night, uh, his town home near Capitol Hill. And uh, he said, no, no, uh, no subject is off limits. And he really lived up to the candor side of things. I mean, he told me things that I would never have expected a, a sitting U.S. senator to, to tell a journalist. You start the book by talking about his father, George. Can you talk about his reverence and adoration for his dad? Yeah, his dad is, is probably the figure who looms largest in his life. George Romney was a pioneering auto executive in, in Detroit. He had actually come from a very poor a Mormon family in in Mexico. He was a you know American, but they were living in a Mexican colony. He he kind of pulled himself up by his bootstraps. A classic sort of American story. Ended up getting himself elected governor of Michigan, and he planted his flag firmly in the liberal wing of the Republican Party in the 1960s. He was a civil rights advocate. He took on Barry Goldwater. And what's interesting is Mitt Romney watched his dad's career as a young man and as a teenager, and he idolized his dad. He thought his dad was kind of the embodiment of integrity and public service, right? So this guy who who didn't just follow the polls or the focus groups or the press coverage, he really did what he thought was right, even when it was unpopular. That included going to the Republican National Convention in 1964 and, uh, and actually refusing to endorse Barry Goldwater and instead delivering this kind of defiant speech about extremists taking over the Republican Party. He was loudly booed and, uh, you know, it, it was very unpopular. But Mitt, as a young man who actually went to that convention with him, watched his dad and felt like, on the one hand, his dad was doing something sort of heroic. But on the other hand, he recognized that it wasn't very pragmatic, right? <laughs> George Romney eventually ran for president himself for a while, looked like he was the front runner, but his career unraveled, his, his campaign unraveled because he uh, he gave an interview where he imprudently said that uh, his he had changed his mind about the Vietnam War because the generals, uh, the, the American military generals had brainwashed him. And it was this one gaffe, this one word that kind of took over his campaign. Mitt watched all this happen, and he he almost saw it as a cautionary tale. Later, when he went into politics himself, he told me he was constantly nervous that he would end up saying something that you know inadvertently that would derail his own presidential campaign the way his dad had. And so, in a lot of ways, he was kind of always trying to live up to his dad's legacy and maybe complete his dad's legacy by getting himself elected to the presidency but also was sort of haunted by the way George Romney's career had ended. And I think that that came through in the way Mitt Romney ran his own campaigns. He often seemed very cautious and calculating and guarded in a way that I think ultimately, uh, you know, made it harder for him to, to connect with voters. 
One of the things that stands out to me as we look at the career, both political and, and professional of Mitt, is his desire and ability to come into crisis moments and fix things. We saw it with the way that he was able to work with the healthcare system in Massachusetts. We saw it with the way that he came into the Salt Lake City Olympic Games. Does part of you wonder that he initially came into the 2012 presidential election thinking that there was a crisis, but as he looked back on it on hindsight, maybe saw that perhaps he wasn't the right fit for it because it wasn't as much of a crisis as he thought? Yeah, well, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, it, you read his journals from the 2012 campaign and you get this sense that he feels like America is on a, the edge of a cliff, right? That that you remember, we're, we're coming out of the, the 2008 financial crisis, the resulting recession, you know, job growth has been really slow. A lot of Americans are out of work. And at the same time, America's accumulating debt, the deficit is growing. And Mitt kind of looked at that situation and saw a financial crisis of the kind that he had spent his private sector career addressing, right? He would go and take over companies and try to uh, turn them around. He turned around the Salt Lake City Olympics in Massachusetts. He, he dug the state out of a financial crisis when he became governor. What's interesting now looking back on it is he said, you know, I, I think that first of all, I probably overstated to myself uh, just how bad Barack Obama was as president, right? He said, you know, the more I, I, I study these things and the more I observe the national economy, the global economy, the more I realize that presidents actually have pretty limited influence over over the economy. You know, they can pursue certain policies and maybe it makes a difference here and there. But the reality is, I don't know if the, you know, the economy would have rebounded much faster if I had been president versus Barack Obama. He also said that as much as he disliked Barack Obama kind of in the heat of campaign of the campaign, and I think Obama felt the same way, he now looks back and says, look, on the things that matter most, and in Mitt Romney's view, that's character. He said Obama passed that test. He he was the he he was a good, uh, you know, honorable man, and that's what's most important in our political leaders because it affects the the national character. And you know, obviously, given his predecessor and given Romney's views of his predecessor, um, that he now places a higher premium on character than he did at the time. Before I read the book, there was. This idea that was kind of cemented into this image of Mitt Romney is that he was a bit of a flip-flopper, right? That he did what he needed to do. He followed the policies that kind of best fit the mold of the party at the time. And as I read the book, and especially as now as we look at you know the 2016 election and, and, and 2020 as well, that it really seems that in the grand scheme of things, Mitt Romney was kind of the one who stayed where he was, and it was the party who left him, right? That's a really interesting observation. I mean, it's funny. One of the things that like, I, I kind of learned about him that, that was a revelation about him when, when I started interviewing him for this book is that the, the flip-flopping is a result of his kind of inherent pragmatism. And it's not that he has no core convictions. He actually does. He, you know, the, on on principles, on matters of character, morality, and, you know, fundamental democratic principles of free and fair elections, America's role in the world, things like that. He has very strong convictions, and you're not going to change his mind. 
On most political policy disputes, though, he kind of feels like there are a lot of different respectable approaches you can take. In other words, on any given issue, there are reasonable positions you can take across the political spectrum. And so throughout his career, he took the ones that were sometimes politically convenient to him, sometimes were things that would help him get elected, but he didn't think he was selling himself out. What's interesting now, though, is that on those core principles, the things about, you know, the, his beliefs about democracy and about the national character and pluralism and things that weren't really up for debate when he was, you know, running for president. He now looks around at his party and feels like they have left him behind. He, he's constantly shocked by how so many of his fellow Republican political leaders, people who he has gotten to know over the years, some, many of whom he respects and likes, are willing to kind of sell out their ideals to follow Donald Trump. And that has been, I think, very shocking to him. But I think you're right. It's a good observation that, you know, at the end, the the, the flip-flopper charges that a lot of his more right-wing fellow Republicans lobbed at him when he was running for office are much, you know, m- much more applicable to their own behavior in the Trump era than Romney. As we look at the Republican Party, and especially as we think of, of the Nixon era and moving into where we are now, there's this idea of a litmus test, right? That you had to believe in certain things, even if you didn't internally believe in them, that like those were policies that you had to agree to. And so I think with the Republican Party, we think of pro-life candidate, right? That that they tend to be anti-LGBTQ in the sense of, you know, we're, we're against trans athletes, we're against the culture war kinds of things. And Mitt Romney is not the kind of person who aspires to pass a litmus test. No, because he he fundamentally just he thinks ideological litmus tests are counterproductive. Right. I mean, a perfect example is the current negotiations going on in Capitol Hill about funding border security and uh, aid to Ukraine and Israel. Right. Um, you know, Mitt Romney was actually he, he's been very frustrated with how those negotiations have gone uh, because he felt like they had a good framework for a bill that would pass. And at the last minute, you know, it was it was kind of torpedoed by Donald Trump saying that he, he didn't favor it. And the speculation is that it's because, you know, Trump wants to be able to run on the border crisis uh, this year. So, you know, Mitt Romney's view of something like that is, I think his quote was that politics used to be the art of the possible, right? The two parties would come together, hash out some kind of deal that nobody loved, but that gave each side something that they wanted. And if it made the situation a little better, that was better than nothing. Now, he says it's the art of the impossible, right? Both parties, um, at least the kind of more extreme factions of them, want to only stake out stances that they know are completely unpalatable to the other side to show their bases that they're fighting. They're fighting for them, right? But they don't actually want to do anything that would lead to a compromise because that's, uh, you know, politically counterproductive for them. And for, for Mitt Romney, that's just fundamentally anathema to how he views the role of an elected official, an elected legislator. And I think it's part of the reason he ultimately decided to retire. He just he couldn't imagine spending another six years uh, in the Senate trying and failing to solve problems because for most of his colleagues, it's not in their self-interest to actually solve any problems. He, he's become very disillusioned by how 
the Senate and, and Washington in general function. Last question here for you, McKay. You'll be in Little Rock to talk about your book on February 29th as part of the Cowles Speaker Series. Reading is often such a solitary action, and it's something people you know, do in the comfort of their homes on a solo basis. Is there something special to you about getting to talk about a book that you wrote to a room full of people? I, man, it really, there really is. I'm really looking forward to this. You know, I've done a bunch of these events across the country, and reading is a solitary act. I will say writing is an especially solitary <laughs> act. I spent, you know, two years kind of hunkered down in my home study, just toiling away at this book. And it really is special to be able to talk about it and, and you know, get the thoughts and reactions from real live people who have read it or are interested in reading it. And, you know, I'm able to kind of share share some of the behind the scenes stories and details that didn't make it into the book. Uh, so it's really a, a special experience. I'm really looking forward to it. The book is Romney, A Reckoning, the author McKay Coppins. McKay, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is Ozarks at Large. It is time for another visit from our militant grammarian, Catherine Sheralds. Welcome back. Hi, Cal. Hello. A friend commented recently on a Facebook post I wrote that included a reference to the hoi polloi. He had to look it up. Do you know what it means? So I now know that hoi polloi means average Joe. Mm -hmm. For years, and I wasn't the only one who did this, hoi polloi sounded like it should reference the swells, the people that are looking down upon us. But hoi polloi is the masses. And it's both. At least so I was never wrong. At least according to Merriam-Webster, it is. Not according to me. You would go with... The common yes. The masses, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think this is another one of those things where so many people thought hoi polloi did mean the sophisticates that, it, that they just say... It, but I mean, it just killed me. Uh, when I looked it up in Merriam-Webster and the first uh, meaning was right and the second one didn't. Hmm. But you can't trust Merriam-Webster online to clear things up. It lists commoners for its first definition and then turns around and gives us the second definition as the, the elite. Basically what Merriam-Webster Online is doing is rendering this a moot word. It shouldn't even exist if it can mean total what, opposites. It, yeah, when it means... Because you, you lose all reference. You have no idea what right. it means. If someone says, this was popular among the hoi polloi, and you look that up, it's like, I don't know. That's right. I have no further information. Except you should always go with the first uh, definition, if it fits what yeah. you're looking for. Sometimes yeah. it doesn't, but... So that exchange got me to thinking about other words that I use, and I find that it's not just frequently confused words that are tricky. There's also this thing called a learner's passive vocabulary. What do you think that is, Kyle? You're just assuming you know what it means, so you don't go any further, or you, you incorrectly use context to give you a meaning? Well, it's words that we understand but don't use yet. Oh, I like this. This can be compared with active vocabulary, which are words that learners understand and use in speaking and writing. So there's active vocabulary and passive vocabulary, but I think there should be a category for confused vocabulary. Mm, yes. <laughs> words we use in a way we think is right, but it's not. This... So Kyle, what if yes. I told you that the party I went to last night was just the penultimate? So you're going to another party tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so what does penultimate mean? It's the next to last. Next to the last. Yes. Very common description for a fancy word. And you, yeah, right. And and of course, as you and I have discussed before, you can get into the anti-demi, semi. Yeah. There's yeah. something all the way fifth to the last. And I know we've talked about it before because I remember how you pulled out of the air the definition of another form, anti-penultimate. 
penultimate. Right. Anti-penultimate. Anti is the third from last. Yeah. Yes. And then there's, <laughs> I think, demi-anti or semi. You can go all the way to the and fifth there, last. And there are a bunch. And it, it dates to poetry and verses mm-hmm. is where sure, it comes sure. from. Sure, right. penultimate yes. verse. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anti-penultimate can be remembered um, like if you're a fan in a line at a book signing mm-hmm. and there are only two people standing behind you. So you're the third from the last, yeah. Right. For the concept of passive vocabulary, here are seven English words that nobody uses anymore but totally should. Okay. That's what the website uh, ef.com says. Kyle, what does facetious mean? Mm, Facetious is um, take something serious and treat it with some irreverency. Yes, that's, that's perfect. It describes when someone treats serious issues with deliberately inappropriate humor or flippantly. Yes. Mm -hmm. The next word I've never used, but I think (laughs) I'll try to move it to my active vocabulary when I'm ruling the roost. Uh The word is henceforth. Oh, um, (laughs) from, from, from now on. Yeah. From this point on. Did you ever watch the television show on HBO, uh, Succession? Some of it. Cousin Greg would use henceforth oh, a lot, yes. <laughs> it, it's a good word. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, I try not to be too often in that yes. pedantic <laughs> yes. Yes. place. Um, next, Kyle, we have ostentatious. I think of a peacock as ostentatious. I do, too. That's, <laughs> in fact, no, I guess a, a group of peacocks wouldn't be an ostentation. But it <laughs> sure should could be, be yeah. yes. And, and and I had written here in, in, in our discussion, for some reason, the image that comes to mind is that of a peacock. Yes. It's when someone or somebody is deliberately showing off. Ostentatious. And, and right. I think of it with architecture. It doesn't have to be even a human being. All right. Taste. I it's, actually it, meant to say something. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's gaudy to some people. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I will argue with the list maker about this next one being a word we totally should use. Okay. It's morrow. M-O-R-R-O-W? So what do you think it means? Tomorrow. Exactly. Why would you say morrow <laughs> except to make your friend look at you like, are you okay? <laughs> Henceforth, we will be calling it morrow. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes. Henceforth, on the morrow, we shall do this. Okay, this one, which we've addressed before, seems useful. Do you remember what it means? Crapulous. I don't. <laughs> but do you remember us talking about it? It's such I a do. great yes. word. It means to feel yeah, ill after eating right. or drinking too much. Perfect. A perfect <laughs> Hair word. of the dog. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> Probably the listed word that's the most fun to say is kerfuffle. Oh, I love kerfuffle. What's a kerfuffle? Okay. I have actually had a semi-serious conversation with coworkers before, like the ranking of these kinds of words. Oh. Uh-huh. Like a kerfuffle is less than a fracas. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Kerfuffle seems fluffy to me. <laughs> kerfuffle is, I think of it, I'm not saying I'm correcting this, but I think of a kerfuffle as something that was a big to-do about something that was kind of annoying, but it's really not worth all that. It didn't resort to violence. Someone got bent out of shape or something, mm-hmm. much less than a melee. Well, supposedly it was derived from Scottish or Irish. Kerfuffle describes a commotion or a fuss, Mm -hmm. especially one caused by conflicting views. A fuss. I like Mm -hmm. that. Like Mm -hmm. it didn't come to blows, but -hmm. someone might have gotten up from the dinner table in a huff. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Finally, Kyle, there's obsequious. Oh, you know, okay. Here's something I don't use. 
because I'm never really sure uh-huh. exactly what I'm seeking. So it's in your passive vocabulary. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. And I know that when people use it, I think, hmm, I'm going to go look that up because i got to find out what they meant. Okay. Uh, well, one thing, it's a standard movie character is an obsequious person. Okay. It means obedient or attentive to an excessive or servile degree. Wow. So, so sort of a sycophant? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But not, and maybe sycophant includes actions too, but it's very right. much words and actions with obsequious. I guarantee you. I didn't think that was – I'm not sure what mm-hmm. I thought it was, but that is not where I was going with it. I was thinking, that for some reason, groveling kind of seemed yeah. like a synonym to me. Yeah. Uh, so, Kyle, until next time, here's hoping you have no opportunity to use the word crapulous. <laughs> yeah, let's hope that. By the way, just look it up, an ostentation of peacocks. So there you go. <laughs> Catherine Sheralds is our sometimes surprise militant grammarian. <laughs> Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today include Sophia Narani, Randy Wilburn, and our militant grammarian, Catherine Schultz. Matthew produced today's show inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2 at the Carver Center for Public Radio. Okay, uh, the weather today is beautiful. It sure is. Tomorrow it's going to be probably what people would say it should be in, in late February. February. Sure. And then I think by Friday we're back to maybe not 80, mm-hmm. but 60s or 70s. Yeah, my sinuses are feeling it. Uh, yeah. My son all night last night had just a ton of congestion. Oh. So it's, it's, it's not just us big kids. It's the little ones who are feeling this, uh, this wide range of, of temperatures and swings here. All right. And I'll, so, talk, I'll talk to Darby about it, see yes. if we can get a handle on it. Yeah, okay. Uh, but you know what? Rain or shine, we'll be here tomorrow. With a brand new show. That's right. I uh, am excited to see uh, what we got on the on the slate tomorrow. Oh, we're talking about dogs and therapy, and Ooh. it's it's a really good conversation. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, concludes its main stage season on Saturday, April sixth, at Walton Arts Center with "Ode to Joy," performing Beethoven's acclaimed Ninth Symphony, the first symphony ever to include vocalists and a chorus. Featuring the Sona Singers, this season-closing concert will also mark the 200th anniversary of the Ninth Symphony's world premiere. Limited tickets remain at sonamusic.org. Got a hold brewing in Eureka Springs is a proud supporter of KUAF and local live music. Their season kicks off in March with live music every Saturday, open seven days a week, March 7th through the 31st, for spring break visitors. For more, gotahold.beer slash events.